inaugural Mr. Dictator pageant didn't go quite as we had planned. For one thing, Fidel Castro's surprise red carpet entrance on a hospital gurney and the even more surprising lack of wheelchair accessible ramps proved embarrassing for everyone, particularly Hugo Chavez, who got tangled up in Castro's urethral catheter as communist strongmen carried the Comandante and Jefe up the velvet-covered stairs. Then, there was that whole unpleasantness between the Grand Ayatollah and a snarky fashion commentator who described his black robe and turban as two Islamic revolution, which caused the supreme leader of Iran to threaten e-television with jihad unless the journalist was tortured and publicly executed, preferably by hanging in the welcome pavilion. Protesters, of course, were a problem, waving placards and chanting slogans with painfully strained rhymes for authoritarianism and genocide behind the cordon rope. But having organized Mr. Up for Parole, Miss Barely Legal Teen USA, and Fox's Who Most Resembles the Messiah, which raised some rather irate eyebrows after the judges selected a 24-year-old gay hairdresser from Queens as the winning Christ. We were hardly strangers to public outcry, and had several high-pressure fire hoses at the ready. Unfortunately, an errant 800 psi blast of municipal water caught our attractive but delicate red carpet correspondent squarely in the ribs and we had to improvisationally replace her with a vaguely similar-looking woman from the convention center's catering staff, whose commentary, almost entirely in Spanish, focused mostly on the available varieties of iced tea and the dinner rolls. Once we finally corralled the dictators and their beret and sash-clad minions into the green room, we hoped the situation would improve, but sadly, it did not. First, Pervez Musharraf seized control of the condiments in a bloodless coup, then Muammar al-Qaddafi refused to formally recognize the existence of the kosher-style cream cheese bagels, then, following a dramatic breakdown in Russo-Korean relations, Kim Jong-il and Vladimir Putin nearly came to blows over the mixed nuts, which led to the creation of a demilitarized zone separating the cashews from the salted pecans. Individually wrapped slices of American cheese were denounced as symbols of Western decadence. The Mr. Coffee was crudely fashioned into a low-powered bomb, and the stalls in the men's restroom were expropriated by Robert Mugabe for the Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front, forcing many dictators to defecate into the urinals until they were declared sole property of the glorious Republic of Uzbekistan, at which point the indignant presidents for life resigned themselves to begrudgingly squatting over the potted plants, except for Castro, who was all set with his catheter and his bedpan. Post-green room, when the dictators, in their finest military regalia, strode on stage for the parade of police states, we suffered yet another logistical setback when our host, the 
handsome and charismatic star of our network's flagship forensic dentistry crime drama was detained by Chinese paramilitaries for unspecified reasons and held in a secret location beneath the orchestra pit. Not wishing to involve the police, we dispatched our most expendable production interns to rescue him, but they too were abducted, and during day crescendos and the opening medley of Rodgers and Hammerstein favorites, their tortured screams were faintly but noticeably audible. The talent segment was next, with Sedan's Omar al-Bashir denying the genocide allegations of his ventriloquist's dummy and Castro, despite intestinal hemorrhaging, performing a surprisingly emotive rendition of Gloria Estefan's Rhythm Is Gonna Get You to the beat of his heart monitor, but every time a dictator received only polite applause for his juggling, or his tap dancing, or his assembly of an improvised explosive device while whistling Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, the enraged autocrat would order the entire studio audience shot, and by the time Kim Jong-il completed his poorly received baton twirling routine, it had become clear that our small cadre of ushers and professional seat fillers would be woefully insufficient to replace the piles of tuxedo-clad dead. After the swimsuit and evening wear segments, which in retrospect, were horribly ill-conceived, we had planned to ask each dictator a pointed, topical question concerning such subjects as poverty, terrorism, and the global AIDS epidemic. But with the contestants' press secretaries reducing our list of questions to a solid, rectangular mass of industrial Sharpie Black, the despots merely approached the microphone, gazed defiantly at the camera, and took their seats so that the next dictator could answer his wordless question with a cold, authoritarian stare. At this point, as the celebrity judges tallied up the dictator's final scores, a few diligent protesters had managed to sneak inside the auditorium and rush toward the stage, littering the luxurious aisle carpets with Amnesty International pamphlets, but they were thankfully incapacitated by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and the ceremony was allowed to continue unmolested. Moments later, however, as our replacement host, again a member of the catering staff, prepared to announce Mr. Dictator 2008 with a plate of crab canapes still resting on his arm, more protesters appeared, waves of them, surging toward the stage past the John Jaweed and the ex-KGB and the Saudi secret police, with blown-up posters depicting mass graves in Darfur, executed homosexuals in Iran, political prisoners held indefinitely in China, Burma, North Korea, Cuba, Uzbekistan, Belarus, Libya, women stoned for committing adultery, women lashed for being raped, children with swollen bellies and refugees packed into hovels and beggars bathing in sewage as supreme commanders and dear leaders and guides of the revolution ate fresh lobster and 
sipped Hennessy cognac and deflowered handpicked schoolgirls and gilded seven-story pleasure palaces, and we were forced to utilize our five-second tape delay to erase any evidence of the dissident's demonstration as we went straight to commercial, replacing all those bloated bodies and famine-stricken faces with Hollywood actresses and reality television stars and sexy men seducing slinkly dressed women with their preference of imported German beer or moisturizing aftershave or large cap asset allocation mutual fund, verdant suburban lawns and white sand beaches and polished decks of cruise ships flashing on our viewers' screens as our security personnel escorted the protesters from the premises, ensuring that when we returned from commercial, there would be no evidence of suffering, of torture, of mass murder or censorship or state-sponsored terror. There would be only Mr. Dictator 2008 shaking hands with the celebrity judges, waving at the surviving audience members, proudly wearing his jewel-encrusted commemorative sash as we rolled the credits and cued the orchestra and briefly acknowledged our sponsors, without whom tonight's telecast would not have been possible. Next, of course, was a very special episode of Millionaire Promiscuous Daughters, which, we assured our viewers, was not to be missed. Sentinel, for instance, on the front page, it says, Senator Slade proposes forced march and or wheeling of city's elderly to the Everglades. Lies, I assure you. All lies. Next, in Wednesday's Gainesville Sun, beside a charming article on using every part of the alligator, it says, Slade seats seat in Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs to Hell's Angel after lost Barbette. Again, nothing can be further from the truth. If the sensational headlines of our state's libel-mongering newspapers and the high-decibel rants of our slander-slinging AM shock jocks are to be believed, I am a manatee-clubbing, Castro-sodomizing, Jew-hating, bat-winged cannibal who has territorially urinated on the Florida-Alabama border 
who has polluted the aquifers of Tallahassee with my own ejaculate, who has consumed daily from a jewel-encrusted skull thermos the blood of the innocent for its purported antioxidant benefits, despite a chorus of nutritionists disputing any measurable dietary value. It even says, in today's Miami Herald, that I was orally serviced by not one, but two 18-year-old, all-nude, full-friction dancers during the nationally televised press conference on the escalating crisis in American public education, brought to climax right before the final sentence of my opening remarks, the eloquent call to salvage our children's future reduced to an inarticulate, orgasmic moan. This last accusation, regrettably, is true, but is not, as the Herald so snidely claims, the product of my unprecedented contempt for the decent, God-fearing citizens whom I have sworn to dutifully serve. Instead, as I will prove tonight, what transpired behind my handsome, bunting-draped podium at the Miami-Dade Public Library Plaza is not the consequence of arrogance or immorality or insanity, but merely the sad, unfortunate culmination of a series of tactical errors. The first tactical error was my decision after a long day of witnessing Miami public school children explain that Benjamin Franklin was a title-holding professional wrestler, to take in the nightlife of South Beach, to forget my anguish over the depressing state of Florida's educational system amidst the neon-swirled opulence of Collins Avenue and Ocean Drive. With only my deputy press secretary and a young, whip-smart senatorial intern from FIU at my side, I strolled therapeutically down the boardwalk, past the shirtless Brazilians and the gussied-up Italians and the glorious Art Deco hotels, sweating off the stress of the morning's K-12 indignities in the sweltering South Florida humidity. At midnight, after a brief excursion down some side streets, I was ready to return to my hotel to rest up for tomorrow's press conference, but the intern pointed to a nightclub, Backdoor Betty's, that promised the letter X and glowing neon triplicate and 100% full friction above mirrored paneling reflecting our gawking faces, and he insisted that we go inside to let off some steam. Absolutely not, I said, with grave congressional authority. When I was elected the junior senator from Florida, I promised to conduct the people's work with dignity and restraint, and it is my firm belief that frequenting an establishment with the name Backdoor Betty's would only serve to undermine this vow. But Senator, said my intern, 4.0 GPA, slated for a summa cum laude, where better to work up the indignation, the moral outrage over the failure of America's public schools than an all-nude, full-friction cocktail lounge, wherein the exploited and sexually marginalized female dancers 
whose substandard educations have provided them with no marketable skills or knowledge have no recourse but to gyrate on chrome poles and saddle up inebriated investment bankers in the VIP room in order to cover their excessive cocaine addiction spiked costs of living. And my fellow Floridians, I know it may sound silly, but that night, surrounded by so much neon and bare flesh and mojito-stained humanity, my intern's words touched me, touched me deep within my heart, and I found myself drawn, magnetically, into the smoky, carnal maw of Backdoor Betty's. I now recognize this as my second tactical error. Before I continue, I must mention that I am joined today by my beautiful wife, Lornima, who so valiantly stood at my side during the X-ray vision scandal and during the public admission of my children's vitamin abuse, supporting me as I steadfastly denied using my superpowers to look through congressional interns' clothing and giving me the strength to quit cold turkey delicious fruit-flavored vitamins in the shapes of cartoon characters, and Shamu, the killer whale. Lornima and I have laughed together, we have cried together, and now we stand together, or at least we stand in the same approximate vicinity as I articulate, as best I can, how I came to be filleted by two relative strangers in the presence of Mayor Manny Diaz, Governor Charlie Crist, the U.S. Undersecretary of Education, and close to a hundred members of the local and national media. Once inside Backdoor Betty's, I struck up a fact-finding dialogue with a young woman named Yasmila, who described her high school's lack of textbooks, discipline, and certified permanent teachers as she waved her private parts rhythmically in front of my face. Curious to learn more about the factors contributing to Miami's sub-50% graduation rate and widespread systemic corruption in pursuit of higher student test scores, I invited her to continue our conversation in more intimate quarters, and ten Benjamin Franklins later, the statesman, inventor, and kite enthusiast, not the supposed professional wrestler, we were in the VIP room with champagne, mirrored ceilings, and Yasmila's similarly oversexed and undereducated co-worker, Miss Cherry. Yasmila and Miss Cherry taught me many things, how failing students were encouraged to drop out to boost school grades, how sexual assaults were covered up by administrators, how athletes were recruited by four-year universities despite lacking the ability to read, all while writhing suggestively to the house music emanating from unseen speakers. They told me the stories of their broken homes, of growing up poor in Little River and Overtown, and I opened up my heart to them, opened my heart as they opened my zipper, and I promised to help them to use all the powers invested in me by the United States Senate to free them from the bonds of all-nude, full-friction oppression and deliver them to a better, 
more well-lit existence. They then asked for $10,000 in unmarked bills and the opportunity to accompany me to the following morning's press conference in silver lame thongs, and I refused. Hand on my heart, I refused. But when they started executing all manner of erogenous maneuvers on my person that my beautiful wife Lonima, trooper though she is, has been unwilling to perform, I found myself impulsively and submissively exhaling yes. For those of you keeping score at home, that was tactical error number three. Now, the dancer's presence behind my bunting-draped podium at the press conference is easily explained. When I arrived the next morning at the library plaza, joined by the mayor, the governor, and the U.S. Undersecretary of Education, Yasmila and Miss Cherry were clad only in their aforementioned silver lame thongs, and I thought it imprudent to situate them where young children, their parents, and especially members of the local and national media could see them. So, due to the lack of more appealing options, crouched behind the podium, it was. I opened my speech with a barrage of terrifying omens, spiraling dropout rates and impending budget cuts and future prison capacities determined by historically low third grade test scores, and as each grave statistic reverberated off the library, the art museum, the historical museum, the backdoor Betty's dancers begged me, from behind the podium, for a lifetime supply of Corvassier and pleasure cruises on private yachts, running their fingers up my pant legs and tying my shoelaces together with their teeth. I moved on to an anecdote of a principal losing her best teacher to the funeral profession because as a funeral director, the teacher stood to make significantly more money, and the dancers pleaded with me for luxury SUVs, for Hermes Birkin handbags, for condos overlooking the beach. This has gone too far, I thought, as I urged the crowd assembled in the library plaza to place greater value on their children's education. I am not helping these poor women. I am merely feeding their misguided belief that brains are meaningless, that diplomas are obsolete, that the path to a better life involves chrome poles and no clothes and neon X's and triplicate, full friction in the VIP room, house music shaking the mirror-covered walls. But then the dancers loosened my belt, unbuttoned my pants, supplicated me with first their fingers and then their lips, and I gave in. Yes, yes, anything for them, anything they wanted. Their wish was my command. After the speech was over, of course, all feelings of vitality, bliss, and ecstasy were replaced by self-disgust, self-loathing, and shame, and I immediately regretted everything. South Beach, Backdoor Betty's, the entire Art Deco school of architecture. The dancers emerged from the podium, the flashbulbs flashed, and my indiscretions were bared for all to see 
completely exposed, save for the silver lame. Yes, I compromised my integrity, compromised my judgment, was led astray by the neon insinuations of the sultry Miami night, but I am no monster, no criminal, no thief. I am but a man, an elected U.S. Senator, but still a man, who makes mistakes, who thinks impure thoughts, and who now stands before you, behind a podium hiding no dancers, to ask you, my fellow Floridians, to join my beautiful wife Lonima and me as we heal together as a state, as a community, as a family. I can only hope that, if the tables were turned, and you were to find yourself with two nearly nude, yacht-requesting, 18-year-old full-friction dancers behind your bunting-draped podium, I would honor you with the benefit of the doubt, with the unconditional forgiveness that, as citizens of this great state of Florida, you so rightly deserve. I ask for your prayers, and I thank you for the privilege of service. God bless you, and God bless America. We found a goose and laid a golden egg. We're gonna bleed that stupid sucker till he's dry. We're gonna fly the waiting from the southwest late in the night. Yeah, that's right. We've got the infrastructure set to distribute. The clientele is nearly chomping at the bit. My friends were set to grab the reins of commerce now. Yeah, that's what's going down. Black market. Black market shine This city is built on borrowed time Oh, I seconds each to articulate their positions, the candidates' opponents lobbed phrases like phased withdrawal, sectarian conflict, and intensive diplomacy as the candidate removed a 1957 Gibson acoustic from a hard shell case and leaned his head over the sound hole 
as he tuned. The opponents kept presidentially posturing, kept regurgitating the words freedom, democracy, stability, but the candidate wasn't even listening. His attention was wholly devoted to his slightly sharp G-string, which, thankfully, was brought into tune right as Wolf Blitzer asked him about his vote in 2002 to approve the war. Wolf, said the candidate, I don't know about that, but I do know about my baby. She was born on a Saturday night, and then he proceeded to thump his guitar, stomp his feet, and play a song as real as the day was long. In the next debate, at Howard University in Washington, D.C., the candidate replaced his Gibson with a 1969 Fender Stratocaster, and after his opponents had recited their polished talking points on racial disparity and no child left behind and the growing poverty gap, the candidate responded to a question from NPR's Michelle Martin about the federal response to Hurricane Katrina with a feedback-laden blues intro and the following lyrics howled primally into his microphone. Baby, I'ma love you till this whole world falls apart. Baby, I'ma love you till this whole world falls apart. So when you tell me you ain't want me, it's like a stingray to the heart. At the following debate, at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, the candidate spoke not a single word, using his allotted time to play several blistering finger-picked bluegrass solos on a five-string resonator banjo as the audience clapped and slapped their knees. The candidate's opponents were unimpressed, even when he played Why Did You Wander at 180 beats per minute, and they began vocally supporting his removal from the race. He's not even trying, complained the junior senator from New York. He hasn't addressed a single issue of importance to the American people in these debates, besides his baby and how she's done him wrong. Sure, he can play a guitar just like he's ringing a bell, said the senior senator from Connecticut. But I ask you, is that the type of quality we want in a president who must wage a relentless war on terror? exit polls, the candidate consistently placed dead last, political pundits attributing his lackluster performance to his refusal to grant spoken interviews or fundraise beyond setting out an open guitar case with a few crumpled dollar bills inside, and yet he attracted a small but fanatical brigade of supporters who followed his campaign trail in VW vans and station wagons pitched tents outside the convention halls and college campuses where he debated, silk screening his likeness onto tie-dye t-shirts and trading bootleg cassette tapes with labels such as response to the social security crisis and NAACP convention unplugged 71207. He was lambasted by the national press, accused by both liberal and conservative commentators of making a musical mockery of the presidential primaries, 
and yet he inspired a sea of flicked-on lighters after his power ballad reply to moderator George Stephanopoulos in Des Moines and a standing ovation from the crowd at the University of Miami's debate in Espanol after his spirited rendition of the traditional Cuban song, Guantanamera. By mid-September, when the presidential hopefuls again descended upon the corn-rich, racially homogenous state of Iowa, the candidate had been barred by the Democratic National Committee from participating in any further debates. But, undaunted, he took up a residency at a Davenport barbecue joint, Saucy Jim's, and continued to run his campaign from a corner booth, or, weather permitting, the outdoor patio. By this point, the media had abandoned him, focusing their cameras on his soundbite-rich opponents, alleging this and denying that in their handsome, well-tailored suits, but the candidate still drew a steady stream of acolytes, hitching rides to eastern Iowa from as far away as Miami and Seattle, and at lunch and dinner, Saucy Jim's was packed to capacity brimming with starry-eyed youngsters who had journeyed to Davenport because they feared that this primary would be the candidate's last, that they'd never again get the chance to see him discuss immigration reform with his harmonica, with his Fender Strat, live and in concert. By October, when the field of prospective commanders-in-chief had moved on to Drexel University, Philadelphia, the candidate remained at Saucy Jim's, having added a bassist, a drummer, and a pedal steel player to his campaign staff. Every now and then, a newspaper reporter would interrupt the all-night corner booth hootenannies to ask the candidate if he was still running for president, if he had any thoughts on Iraq or Iran or the subprime mortgage crisis. But the candidate would merely grab a bottle of Miller Lights from a nearby table and play a sizzling electric slide solo, and all questions regarding Shiite militias or Tehran's nuclear program would be silenced. In November, while the candidate's opponents verbally slugged at each other in Las Vegas, the land of slot machines and Elvis and poorly conceived marriages, the candidate called for a press conference and though no one from the mainstream media showed up, word of mouth, handmade flyers, and free ticket giveaways in local record stores led to a crowd of over a thousand camping out on Saucy Jim's lawn, awaiting the candidate's pearls of wisdom as he secluded himself backstage in the employees-only restroom. After the opening act, an extended a cappella duet of Patsy Cline's I Fall to Pieces by the candidate's favorite waitresses, Constance and Arlene, the assembled crowd whipped into a near-riotous frenzy, chanting the candidate's name with the fire-and-brimstone fervor normally reserved for revival tents, and when the candidate finally appeared, brandishing a Les Paul custom guitar in a rhinestone-studded suit, the applause was deafening, tables shaking, silverware clattering, beer bottles shattering, all business inside the barbecue joint ground to a halt until the staff and the patrons 
slowly regained their hearing. When I was the junior senator from New Mexico, said the candidate, his fans on the lawn drinking in every word, I believed that truth was a slogan on bumper stickers. I believed that truth was whatever won the centrist vote. I believed that truth could be preached by men in bow ties on cable television, could be shouted by prescription drug addicts on AM FM radio, could be written in letters to the editor by angry in Atlanta, rambling in Roanoke, bug-eyed in Biloxi, could be measured to the nearest half a percent margin of error in a nationwide Gallup poll. But now, I hear more truth in one blues lyric, in one snare hit, in one sorrowful, soul-bearing note, than in every professionally penned, focus group vetted, eloquently delivered campaign speech that's ever passed from a politician's sugar-coated lips in my lifetime. I'm tired of lying, tired of politicking, tired of snake oil and smoke and mirrors and CNN. All I want is to tell the truth, the dirty, low-down truth, of how my baby, she don't want me, how she'd been messing around with another man, of how even though she rambles and she gambles, I can't quit her, no matter how hard I try, no matter how it eats me up inside, because she's my baby, my one and only, my brown-eyed pride joy. And then, as the candidate's campaign staff struck up a laid-back blue shuffle, an E, the candidate outlined his five-point plan for the presidency with occasional fills from his Les Paul for emphasis. Part one was an order of baby back ribs, extra sauce. Part two was a side of coleslaw. Part three, corn on the cob. Part four, extra packets of gravy. And part five, a tall, cold Budweiser. Nice and smooth. Going down. Easy. After that, who knew? For this was America. The jewel of the free world. And as the candidate cranked his amp and throttled his guitar and sang, Mama Baby... I'ma love you with every last bit of soul he could muster from his aching, stingray-pierced heart. Both he and the audience knew, after the second chorus, when the groove was heavy, when the night was young, when the Budweiser was not yet gone, anything and everything was possible.
sofas 